to James 5. We only have two more sermons to go in this epistle. I'm not actually sure how many weeks we've been in the book of James, how many months, but we've taken a long time sort of working through the text methodically, and there's been a lot there for us to to encounter and also try to be faced with to live out. And I've enjoyed the study in the book of James, and I think the Lord has directed us through that. But also, I want to mention to you that the elders recently have been in discussion with me about where to go next in our expositional series, where to go next in the Bible. And uh, I think I've landed on a couple books in the Old Testament for us to go through, and those are Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we're going in that, <laughs> we're going in that direction. One person likes it, but hey, that's great. But... Um, <laughs> I'm going to delve in there and sort of uh, see what the Lord has for us. So if you want to be reading ahead over the next couple weeks, Ezra and Nehemiah is where we're headed. And we obviously have the uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas season, so we'll, we'll intersperse that with um, some holiday-oriented messages about the first advent of Christ, but also heading in that direction. Hey, let me pray one more time. Father, I pray that you would just open our hearts as we look at the Word of God. Lord, let the word of God reflect your glory back to us and let our hearts be thrilled by the truths that are found therein. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're looking at the topic of prayer, the topic of prayer. Prayer for the Christian should be as natural as it is for a person to breathe. Prayer is our lifeline to God. It is a grace that God has provided for us to communicate with the living Lord. He intercedes for us. He helps us. Christ helps us to pray. The Holy Spirit interprets our prayers. And also, the Father has made himself available to us to be sought after as a son or daughter going to him and communicating with him. I've heard one pastor regularly repeat that God gives three answers in prayers to the Christian. Christians are either told yes, no, or just wait a while. And we have that kind of intimate access with the Lord. And what James brings up at the tail end of this book is that the power of God is manifested through prayer. If we would just take him up on it, if we would just pray, we could see the power of God that would change our lives and change the church's lives together. Follows I read verses 16 through 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You know, if you're looking around in our culture, in our country, you'll hear people talk about prayer all the time. I mean, it's a very regular topic for people to be called upon to pray, even in our society. You'll hear it in times of war, in times of attack. You know, our country needs to pray. You'll hear it when people who are famous, celebrities perhaps, come down with a terminal illness. You'll hear the soundbite, our prayers and thoughts are with you, right? Yesterday, I was watching some college football, and I 
noted um, one sort of televised spot of two teams coming to the middle of the field on the 50-yard line to pray together before they played each other. And that's surrounding a very egregious um, sort of issue with one of the universities that many of you know about that's in the news. And there's all kinds of um, scandal and problems that are there that are egregious, that are very difficult. And so as sort of a symbol of togetherness before these two teams competed, they came together and got on their knees and prayed together. They communicated with each other. They tried to symbolize being together in that moment. You'll, you'll see effects and events like these in and through our society. But let me say this. Our society, it does the act of praying. And for believers, that prayer or those prayer acts are real and are powerful. But for unbelievers, they do not experience what we have in the church, which is a direct line to our Heavenly Father. Our prayers, the church's prayers, are really the only authentic, empowered, real prayers that reach the very heart of God in heaven. Just think about it. Before you are a Christian, or if you're an unbeliever, you are at enmity with God. There's a wall between you and the Lord. In fact, you're running away from God instead of running to God. There's, there's a sort of static on the line between you and the Lord, and there's a sin barrier that blocks the communion that believers experience. But when you become a Christian... That barrier is dropped, and now you have instant, immediate access as a child of God to the heart of your Heavenly Father in prayer. And that's why prayer should be for us as natural as breathing. It's just what we do in regular communication to our Lord as He knows about our lives and knows what we need most of all. It's what He promises to assist us in as He calls us, as 1 Thessalonians says, to pray without ceasing. In other words, we should have an ongoing conversation that's happening with the Lord. Now you say, well, what about the prayers of the the nation or the prayers of other people who are not yet believing? What about children who pray? Well, just to answer some of those questions in brief, obviously the Lord hears all prayers that are prayed because he's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And he's also all-powerful. So he hears the cries of people. But he energizes those who are either believers or unbelievers who are repenting. When someone repents, God hears that prayer. Because God's Holy Spirit is involved in that prayer. And that's the first prayer that he hears from people in that authentic, real, relational, living way when they repent for the first time. I think children should be called upon to pray, even those that aren't yet believers, because they are experiencing the power of God within a believing family, where you have a husband or a wife that's a believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says that they are uniquely set apart, and actually Paul calls those children holy even before they are regenerated in their hearts. It's because the gospel environment is around that believing home, and so they should be called to pray to experience the power of God. But when someone is born again, when you were brought from death to life, when you were awakened spiritually, guess what? You tapped into prayer and into the power of God in a way that is unique 
from all other people in the world. And that's why I bring it up in this way. I just want you to sort of re-engage with the idea that you possess a precious, powerful gift from God. And it's called prayer. It's called prayer. The Holy Spirit calls us to pray. And he takes the petitions and the requests that we make to God. And guess what he does? He reinterprets them according to the will of God. He energizes them so that powerful things happen as we are requesting things to happen. God's power in prayer. Everything from someone being healed, someone being saved, brought from death to life. Someone's life that's going in a wrong direction, being turned around. God's involved in all of that. And even in some of the smallest ways, it's so interesting to think about God's love for us and special love for us as his children. When we pray for things like losing our keys, you ever do that? I mean, that's such an interesting thing to lose your keys. and You got to be somewhere and then you start to get in the flesh and you don't want to pray, but you know you need to pray. And, you know, you look around the whole house and you haven't prayed and finally you go, Lord, please. Oh, there they are. You ever have that happen? Is that just me? My goodness. You know, the Lord is involved in even those details when we pray to him. Just this last week, um, we have recently adopted um, a new member of our family. Her name is Charlotte, and she's a hamster. Don't ask. But all that to say, this new animal in our lives um, came and lived um, well in the cage for about, what, three or four days, and then all of a sudden was out of the cage. And uh, I had nothing to do with it, but the lid was left open, and we began a mass search through the house. And that little hamster had, you know, sort of buried its way behind the dresser and was just safely waiting for us to find her, but... In the meantime, Emmy is crying, and, you know, this is sort of a big, big dramatic problem. And, and so, apparently, once the hamster was found, I wasn't spiritual enough to be praying about it, but, but Mom and Emmy were praying for this to happen. And when the hamster was discovered and found, Judy wrapped Emmy up in her arms, took her aside, and said, let's take a moment and thank the Lord, because the Lord has helped us find your pet that you love so dearly. God's involved on those intimate levels, on the highest end where we're praying for government leaders to be directed, even if they're pagan, even if they're unbelieving, as we're praying about presidential elections coming up. God's involved in all of that, and he uses our prayers to bring about his ends. And we're not worthy of that, but we are the church, and we're the ones who God listens to. And so we have an incredible responsibility to get prayer right, to understand what is going on in prayer. Why is it powerful and how can God use me as a prayer intercessor for him and his kingdom work? That's what James is dealing with at the end of this book of the Bible. It's a very important topic because it's right at the end and he wants this Christian community to be strong. They've been weakened And as we've been talking about, the weak are made strong. And he wants the church to be strong where it can face anything. There's no excuses for us to not keep fighting the good fight of faith as a church and to face all kinds of things because we are promised the power of God through prayer. 
And that's what James is directing the church to think about. The power of God in prayer. So you can face anything and you can be used, guess what, to change the world. We're praying for every tribe, tongue, nation, and people to come around the throne of God. And guess what? God uses those prayers to change the world. All right. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. As we talked about last week... These are the two rails of a track that James is talking about here as he's ending up his book of the Bible. How does the church become strong? Well, through two, two ways. One, through energized praying. And two, through transparent confessions. They're both here in verse 16. In the text, we're going to see how these two methods are applied and then illustrated. Prayer is powerful, and we need to learn about it. Let's just get a running start to review here. Last week, we talked about verse 13. James is talking about the gamut of experience, the range of experience from our highs to our lows. Verse 13, anyone who's suffering in general, you're supposed to pray for yourself. You're supposed to go to God on your knees and pray about that suffering. Secondly, if you're rejoicing, if you're cheerful, then you're supposed to sing praise. Literally, you're supposed to pluck an instrument. You're supposed to get excited and happy in the Lord if God is blessing you. Both are vertical responses and are prayer-oriented responses. Then in verse 14, there's sort of a specific need where someone is desperately sick. The word sick here in verse 14 and 15, if you combine those terms, you've got a deathbed scenario where someone is actually unable to go for help. They're calling the elders, they're calling the pastors, they're calling the people to come around, the men of the church, to pray over them and pray for physical healing, anointing this person. But the primacy of that call for prayer is that the person on their deathbed would be buoyed up in the faith, would be strengthened, and would be reassured that his or her sins are genuinely forgiven by grace through faith alone. Not by some sort of prayer method, but this is a reassurance by the faith of those men saying, we're praying for you, we're praying for you, brother, we're praying with you, sister. We want you to be healed now, but we want you to be reassured that you will one day be healed in heaven. That's the healing promise of verse 14 and following. Then in verse 15, there is a specific mention of sin that could be the cause of this deathbed scenario. This sort of harmonizes well with 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11. And this is where a person is offering up a transparent confession. Look at that. It says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He's opening the door here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 30 says that some in the church were weak and ill and some have died. It's the same word here used in verse 15 for sick. And the reason was is because a person was hiding sin. They weren't transparently confessing sin. And so they called the elders of the church, came under conviction and said, I... The Lord is revealing something to me, and I realize that I need to confess it. And and I think literally there are times where people confess their sins, they get right with God, and the chastening or, or disciplining hand of God is lifted, and that person is raised up in this life, healed, made whole. That's not always the case, though, but I think this passage points to it. And sin is not always the reason that that Christians die or get sick, as you know. You have the book of Job that 
talks about how he was not harmed because of sin. And in John chapter 9, the blind man, he was not blind because he sinned or his parents sinned, but just to give glory to God, he was to go through that trial. But here in verse 16, James is doing something to to sort of use those themes and broaden them to the whole Christian community. Now we're not talking in verse 16 about being physically sick or ailing physically. We're talking about how the church needs to be healed spiritually. Because this is applied to all of the church, all of the Christian community. Look at verse 16. Again, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. You have two things that are going on in verse 16 that should always be going on in the church. Two things. Transparent confession and praying for one another. Now for some of you, you might think, man, I don't know that I want to hear about a verse like this because it it sounds like I need to become very, very vulnerable to be helped spiritually. Let me tell you, that's exactly what James is saying. This is the discipline... Oh, let me put it this way. It's the decision to become vulnerable. It's where you put yourself in a relationship or any discussion with someone else and you say something like this. I have some sin in my life and I would like to talk to you about that. Now, this verse needs to be uh, understood in the context of all of Scripture. It's really a one of a kind kind of verse where it's saying confess your sins to one another. But it's sort of a wide open statement, so you have to understand it in the context of all of the Bible. I mean, it's not really talking about Matthew 18 confrontation type stuff, I don't think. It's too generic. It's not a a formal process. But I don't think this verse also is talking about having an open mic in the service where someone parades, people parade one after the other and hang out all their dirty laundry to all of the church. I think that does more harm than good. But this is instead talking about an intimate relational approach where you get in community with people and you talk to people and you share your sins with that person in a safe environment, but in a church context. I think it connects well with Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should look at the word here, restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then it says in verse 2, I I love this. This is like a direct connect, I think, with verse 16 of James 5. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In essence, what you're doing is you're going to someone and you're either hearing a confession or you're giving a confession and you're committing to that person that you will get under that burden with that person and help them carry it. You'll pray for them. You'll help them. You'll understand them. Watch this. You'll enter into their pain with them. That's that's what the Christian community is called to do. To ask about how someone's doing spiritually. To receive what they tell you. And then to commit to them that you will pray with them and exist with them as a body part. As an intimate member of their spiritual life. 
You say, I don't want to do that. That's ugly. That's messy. That's not helpful. Let me tell you, after I preached this first hour, there were at least two that came to me and began to confess and just talk. And you know what? They needed to do that. I'll tell you why. Because we all long to be, look at verse 16, healed. Healed. This is the language of Christ. This word could mean physical healing, but it's, it's broad. It's talking about the broad context of the body of Christ. This is the language of Jesus where he would bind up the broken hearted. It's a spiritual healing that goes on. It's where Jesus says, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Now that's the authority of Christ. Our authority is to say, let me point you to the gospel that your sins can be forgiven, and that you can ongoingly experience the forgiveness and grace of the gospel in your life. That's the ministry of the Christian community, and that's our call to each other. If we don't do this, let me just say, if you avoid this kind of Christian community, you are taking yourself away from one of God's greatest blessings and one of God's greatest means of grace to your spiritual life and development. There are so often situations where early in my Christian life, when I would confess sins to people, to to be accountable with mentors, to grow, where someone would set my conscience at ease and say, it's not as bad as you think. Let me put it in a biblical context. Let me wrap some scripture around this and let me give you some hope spiritually so that you can be on the right track. There are other times in the Christian experience where you confess something and it's much worse than you thought that it was. And there's all kinds of pride behind it and all kinds of damage that's being done that needs to be corrected. But that happens within a healthy body and within the Christian community. And it comes through transparent confession and energized prayers. There was one time where I was sitting and listening to a a young man and he was... He was telling me things on a superficial level, but I could tell that he needed to tell me something on a deep level. We met. We met again. We'd go out to eat. We'd go to this place. We'd go to that. I'd get him in different contexts, and I just knew there was something that needed to be said. And he told me. And I'll tell you, it was the most important confession that he could make out of his whole life, and it had to do with something that happened to him when he was a young teenager, that he needed to get off his chest. Most important thing that he could possibly do so that he could receive help and be prayed for specifically, be counseled biblically, be buoyed up by others and helped. And it had implications throughout the church with other people that needed to make confessions and for repentance to be granted and sought for and found. That's where healing comes from, transparent confessions. How many times have you known people or perhaps experienced in your own life where you're paying for this healing? You're you're paying uh, counselors, whether secular or Christian counselors, come, let me confess something to you in the privacy of an office so that you as a professional can help me get some peace and healing in my life. I'm not combating that technique, but I'm saying that God has given us Healing in and through the ministry of the church, the community. This is what we're here for. We're here for things to get ugly sometimes. For things to, 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 to not be all neat and tidy and clean. 
This is absolutely countercultural to what the world says to do. The world says, put on a different face, be professional, dress the part, look the part, put up a professional barrier and navigate through your world. And the church is saying, or the Holy Spirit through James is saying, open up, let it out within the bounds of appropriate relationships and Christian community. You might say, I don't have Christian community. Then start with the pastors, start with the elders, talk to them. And and either use them, lean on us, and we can bear your burdens, or we can direct you to Christian community where you can feel safe, where you can have the opportunity to let your heart out and be prayed for, and be prayed for within the church. This is what the gospel offers to us. This is, uh, you know, the first application is confessing your sins to one another. And then the second is to pray for one another. Pray for one another. What does that look like? You know, there's an amazing promise here. Look at the second half of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, I sort of took this verse apart in the original language to try to see its emphases because this verse has been translated oftentimes emphasizing two things, the righteousness of the person or the earnestness of the prayer. His righteousness or his his prayer sweat is what's emphasized often in this verse. And that's not the point of this verse at all. Oftentimes people say, well, look, how righteous do I have to be to tap into the power of God, or how earnest do I have to be? How how fervent do I have to be in praying to see God's hand move? And really what's emphasized here is that prayer is the option for power. I interpret it this way. Being very powerful is the prayer. That's just kind of how the Greek words lay out. Being very powerful is the prayer of a righteous person as it is energetically working. What's energetically working is the prayer, and the prayer is powerful. Now, to be righteous here, to be a righteous person, let me just clarify, that's talking about a believer who stands in grace. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says that we stand in grace. We've been justified by the grace of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 talks about how we, have, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I think that's right. It might be chapter 3. But we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ in the gospel. That's what it means to be righteous. But also in this immediate context, it can't mean that a person is, is spiritually righteous enough for the power to come. Because it's all in the context of verse 16. James has just called the church to confess sins to one another. And so the point is, look, just make yourself right with God. Cling to the gospel, get transparent, be open, confess your sins openly. And that's what it means to be right with God. You're right vertically and horizontally. And you're poised to experience the power of God. Energized prayers are God's means to powerfully change the church. Transparent confessions heal the church, but energized prayers are God's means to powerfully change the church. What is an energized 
prayer. What does it mean? You know, prayer is powerful. And we need to lean on this discipline and almost get ourselves out of the way for God's power to work. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, God rewards those who seek him. Elisha, he restored the widow's son through prayer. Remember the 185,000 Assyrian warriors who were slain in a moment by the prayer that was given by Hezekiah? Literally. Prayer as it is working. It's where the believer sees prayer as the option. There's a lot of things that we can do besides praying. You ever talk yourself out of praying? Okay, I'm going to pray. I've got it in my daytime. I'm going to get to that. But, oh, you know, i got this other thing. Or, you know, let's get together and have a prayer request time. And then we'll pray. And you take 55 minutes talking about the prayer request. And then you pray for two. Right? Prayer is the discipline where God brings the power. Because guess what? Prayer is... Perhaps the most pronounced spiritual discipline of faith. Anybody can read the Bible. Anybody can go and do something. But to actually stop and authentically pray, that takes faith. To talk to God who is invisible to us, that takes faith. And God works through that act of faith. Let's look at the illustration. The applications are... Transparent confession and energized praying. And then verse 17, the illustration. This is Elijah. Elijah. What a illustration. He's in league here, as James has written. He's in league with Abraham. James mentioned Abraham and James 2. Rahab, James 2. And also Job, James 5, verse 11. Now he's mentioning Elijah. And Elijah is a man who is used by God in manifold ways, in powerful ways. For the Jewish, early Jewish Christian here, Elijah would be like a superhuman figure in that person's mind in terms of how he was used. He was mentioned, he's mentioned 40 times in different ways in the New Testament alone. Remember at Mount Transfiguration, Elijah was one of those along with Moses on that mount, in that vision. He was there. He's the last person referenced at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah's mentioned. Now, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you've got 400 years of silence And so people are anticipating and waiting for the Messiah and they're thinking, okay, Elijah was mentioned. We're looking for Elijah. He's going to be the forerunner of Christ. And guess who was? John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. But Elijah was a very important person in terms of hope. What did Elijah experience? Here's some miracles of the career of Elijah. Um, number one, he caused the rain to cease for three and a half years, 1 Kings 17. He was fed by the ravens, 1 Kings 17.4. He brought the miracle of the barrel of meal and cruise of oil in 1 Kings 17.14. The resurrection of the widow's son. The calling of fire from heaven on the altar as he took on the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. He caused the rain again through prayer. He 
prophesied that Ahab's sons would be destroyed, and they were, 1 Kings 21. Prophesied that Jezebel, Ahab's wife, the queen, would be eaten by dogs, and she was. Prophesied of Ahaziah would die of his illness. He called fire from heaven upon 50 soldiers, and then he did it again and called fire down again on 50 more soldiers. He prayed for the parting of the Jordan, and it parted. He prophesied that Elisha would be filled with a double portion of the spirit that Elijah had experienced, and he did. And then Elijah was caught up to heaven in a whirlwind, 2 Kings chapter 2. So Elijah would have been, in the the Greek mindset, he would have been put on the pantheon along with the other alleged gods. That would have been blasphemy, blasphemy to do that. But he was used in a powerful way. He had a supernatural reputation. And I think that's why James is so quick to use someone so powerfully used as an illustration. But then to quickly say in verse 17, look at this. Elijah was a man, an anthropos, a, a guy just like we are. He's a human being with a nature like ours. Used in a mighty way, but used because he got out of the way. Okay, you see that? Powerfully used was this man, Elijah. Had a nature just like ours. The word nature is the word for passions, pathos. It's, it's, he had the same weaknesses, the same strengths, the same desire packages. He, he had the same ideas. He had the same, you know, up times and down times. The same temptations. The same makeup. The same humanness as us. And yet he was used in a powerful Way. And that's why he's the perfect illustration here for why we should pray for God to work powerfully. Powerfully in spite of us. I think James is specifically thinking of 1 Corinthians 19, 1 through 11. You might turn over there. Um, this is where, sort of at the end of a chapter in the story in 1 Kings, Elijah, here he had called fire down from heaven. He had prayed that the rains would stop, and it did. He confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He had them slain. He's praying that the rain will come back. He sends Ahab, the king, down to look for the rain cloud three times, or this messenger to go look, I'm sorry, seven times, to see the rain cloud come. The rain comes. And he says, I am now going to go to Jezreel. And he outruns Ahab's chariot to get there. So then what does he do? Guess what? Elijah comes off the mountaintop. And I think the Lord probably peeled back his power a little bit so Elijah would be exposed and see himself for who he really was. Just a weak, frail human being made of dust just like you and me, and it says in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 11, then he was afraid. Who was he afraid of? Ahab? No, Jezebel. He didn't want Jezebel, Ahab's wife, to come after him and kill him. It says he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. Stop there. What did he do? He ran into the woods. He said, I'm out of here. 
I don't want Jezebel to kill me. I know who I am and I know what I'm not. And so I'm going to sit under a tree, perhaps like a willow tree, where I won't be found. And I'm going to wish that I wasn't alive. He says, it's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. It's a man who was mightily used, who was in touch with his own weakness. Paul and Barnabas had a very similar story just in passing. I want to talk about Acts chapter 14. They had just been used to heal a crippled person that it was an indisputable miracle of God. And so these Gentiles that were were sort of being evangelized and watching this happen suddenly um, thought in terms of their Gentileness, if I can sort of coin a word, and they began to see Paul and Barnabas as Greek gods. They were calling... Um, Barnabas Zeus, and they were calling Paul Hermes as the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, this is Acts 14, 13, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, you know what they did? They tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. Of like nature with you. Same word. Of similar nature. We're the same thing. This is what God has done, not what I have done. Talks about, says, look, we're just here to bring the good news. You need to be worshiping God, not a man. And that's the picture of Elijah here. Used in a powerful way, but just as weak as we are. So what did he do? What did Elijah do? James chapter 5 verse 16. He prayed fervently. I want to talk about that for a second. That's another phrase that I think is a little bit misleading in how it's translated. Praying fervently. Literally it's he prayed with prayer. And some people will say well that double use of the word prayer and praying is talking about fervency or effort. It's the idea that Elijah prayed hard and so big things happened. But that's not the point of the text. The tone of the text, both in James 5.17 and then as we'll see back in 1 Kings, is simply this. Elijah prayed. According to 1 Kings 17.2, he prayed according to the will of God. He knew what to pray for and the timing. And then... The faucet was turned off. It, it, it dried up for three years and three and a half years, according to what James says. And then he prayed again, and something else happened. The rains came. That's it. It's just Elijah saying, I'm willing to be used of God and trust you through prayer. And he prayed. Look at this. He prayed fervently. He prayed with prayer. That's the option he chose. He chose to pray that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, obviously, Elijah prayed in between during those three years, three and a half years. James is a little bit more specific, saying three and a half years, by the way. The writer of uh, 1 Kings kind of rounded down and just said, you know, it's a season of three years, but precisely it was three and a half years. And Elijah obviously prayed during that time, but that's not the point of James James here and what he's saying. That's not the point of the text. The point is, he resorted to pray. That's what he chose to do. And big things happened. I want that to be an encouragement to you. If your heart is hurting, 
if you're grieved, if you're wanting a second chance, if you're wanting to help other people in the body of Christ, if you're wanting to help your family, if you're wanting to help things work out, guess what? Resort to prayer. That's the option. That's what James is holding up. Pray. Don't forget about praying. People, I think, stop praying because they don't think God uses it anymore. It doesn't work. But guess what? God works through prayer and he promises to work through prayer. So just stop and pray. Ask the Lord and ask him for specific things and watch him work. He'll either say yes or he'll say no or he'll say wait a while. But the Lord uses prayer. You know, actually, let me give you a little context, a little running start to what was happening. You might turn back over to 1 Kings and look at um, chapter 17. This is a, a story about the nation of Israel. Israel had been a whole nation under first King Saul and then secondly, the first godly king, David, and then you had Solomon. By the time of Solomon's reign, Solomon was going after, you know, he was fraternizing with the Queen of Sheba and then going after other women from other countries. And um, he was involving himself in those relationships and sinfulness and also wicked idolatry, having his heart moved away from the true and living God. And from that was born a national split because as certain kings followed, you had um, Rehoboam, who was down in Judah, and he was bringing kind of legalistic, harsh reform. And so you had Jeroboam, who went up to Israel, and Rehoboam, who stayed down in Judah. And it was a split kingdom by the year 722 B.C., before Christ. 722 years before Jesus came, came the nation was split in half. If you want to remember sort of that split and who went where, you could remember it this way. Jeroboam, that king, jumped up to Israel in the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam remained down south. That's just for free, and that's just so you can score well on the Bible quiz you're not going to have tomorrow. But you know what? I had to take the Bible quiz, so I'm using it. I never thought when I would use it, but here it is. All right. Jeroboam jumped. Rehoboam remained But we're talking about the northern kingdom in this context. And the king that came after Jeroboam in this context was Ahab and his wife Jezebel. You have Ahab. And he's confronted here by Elijah. Look at verse 1 of 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Okay, in those verses, and this is what James is talking about and referencing, do you see Elijah praying anywhere? I mean, the emphasis here is not that he earnestly is praying and and really pouring on the prayer sweat. No. It's implied, though, that he prayed by the posture that he refers himself to to being in, where he says, before whom I stand. Verse 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. That was a typical posture in prayer. And so Elijah is pictured as praying to God, standing up before him, just like Jesus Christ did often when he would pray before he would do miracles. Secondly, in in 1 Kings chapter 18, or... 1842, there's another indication that Elijah prayed, but it's not explicitly stated. This is after 
Elijah had confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Uh, you know, Ahab and his wickedness had sort of gathered together the prophets of Baal. He was resorting to false teachers because Baal prophets were, I mean, Baal um, idols were the idols of thunder and lightning. And so if you wanted to pray for rain and sort of make rain happen in your own way, in a pagan way, you created altars to Baal and you used Baal prophets. It would be like sort of the God of Thor, you know, the, the thunder and lightning God. And so that's the prophet. I mean, that's the, the God who is called Baal. And then you also have this other prophet, or I'm sorry, this other false God called an Asherah, And that was the God of fertility. And so Ahab was trying to feed the stomachs of the nation through false worship. And then also was trying to feed the sensuality of the nation through the Asherah. Which the Asherah or the Ashereth um, idol was the idol of what might be like Nefertiti or or Venus today. A A goddess of sensuality. And in 1 Kings 16, 33, you might look over there real quickly. It says, Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Did you catch that? He did more to anger the Lord than all the kings before him through this pagan idolatry. And so that's sort of the, the context that we find ourselves in where now... Elijah is praying. And in 1 Kings 18.42, look at how he prayed. It says, So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Again, it's the posture of prayer, but it doesn't really go into it about his prayer life. But that's the option that Elijah chose. He prayed standing before and God shut up the rains from coming down to the earth. And there was that drought. And then Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, cleans house. They're killed. And then he prays again. And it's just, we infer from this, it's implied here that he prayed because he stuck his head down between his legs and asked the Lord to bring the rain once again. And again, the cloud came. And the rains replenished the earth. It's a picture of rain that shows us the picture of God's grace. You know, I ask myself, and you should ask yourself, why, why is James pointing out this scenario for highlighting prayer and the power of prayer? Now, obviously, if you see Elijah as praying, it is a pretty powerful miracle, and I do. But why not bring up where he prayed over the Shunammite's son, you know, the, 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 the baby, the boy that, that was healed and brought back through prayer. Why not bring up the prayer of Elijah where he prayed and had fire fall from heaven and consume that altar as he confronted the prophets of Baal? Why not, why not highlight those scenarios? I think back in James chapter 5, we have the answer. In James chapter 5, the point is that the community of Israel was replenished with rain. Look at this. Verse 18, he prayed again, and heaven gave 
rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That picture in the Old Testament is taken as an illustration for spiritual replenishment and spiritual life in the church. In other words, if you're dry spiritually, ask God through prayer, like Elijah, for the rains to come again. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, God is the good, gift-giving God who will send down his blessing on your life. And if you have a parched and weary soul, it can be revitalized through prayer. This was how Solomon prayed. It's so interesting. I'll just highlight this quickly. 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon said, when heaven is shut up, there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Then when there's repentance, he says, then here in heaven and forgive, there'll be forgiveness of sins. Your people will teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land. Here's a more familiar verse that kind of gels with this idea where sin is the reason that there's drought and repentance, watch this, transparent confession and prayer is when things get replenished. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Now you've heard of this verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Did you ever hear that verse applied to our nation? Oftentimes it is. It's really directly talking about Israel and how God would give drought in the land and send the locusts over the land to put the nation of Israel in a state of desperation so that they would pray for healing. And the healing would come through the rains and then the crops would feed the people again. But that idea through James is applied to not our nation specifically. Guess where it's applied? to you. If you're dry spiritually, if you need God to reign upon your soul again, transparent confession, and choose the option of prayer. Pray for yourself. Pray for other people. Pray for God to help you. And pray, as James 5.16 says, that you'll be healed spiritually. I have to guess that some of you need healing. Probably all of us need some level of healing, but some of you are desperate for healing. And I want to call you to open up. Get outside of yourself. Get outside of your comfort zone. Don't talk yourself out of it. Go to somebody and tell them about it. Tell them what's happened to you. Lean on the church. Lean on a relationship and disclose and trust someone so that they can do the ministry that only the church can do where people come alongside and bear up burdens with you and pray with you and help you. And what you'll find is when you give yourself to someone, guess what that person will do back? They'll give themselves back to you. You ever experienced that? That is 
perhaps one of the most valuable experiences you can have this end of heaven. That's what James is calling the church to do, to see miracle power happen where it reigns again in your life. Let's look at a couple take-home points. Number one, praying comes from God's power, not our own efforts. You see that? It's God's power. You say, I don't like to pray. I don't know the words. I don't know the language. No, just get yourself out of the way. I was sort of watching my two-year-old son, and he loves to try to bar me off from going up the steps, you know, sometimes. And he's two, you know, so he's like this tall. And he'll stand in the, in the stair, stairway like this. And I just think, you know, he's not really going to stop me. He, he really thinks he can. And I just kind of blow past him. But in essence, when we pray, we don't want to do this by trying to pray in our own efforts. We just need to let go and trust God and, and allow for the Holy Spirit to enable us in our prayer life. We should seek to take ourselves out of the way. Second, praying to God is not to inform him, but to acknowledge him. You know what transparent confession is? It's the word homilageo. It's saying the same thing that somebody already knows about you. When you confess to God, he already knows it. When you confess to other people, a lot of people already know something's going on. You're just coming clear. That's transparent confession. And so we're not informing God as we pray, as we confess sins, or as we ask for things. We're acknowledging that he's the one who alone can take care of things for us. Number three, praying that's powerful freely confesses sin to God. There's really no such thing as a business prayer. <laughs> right? There's no such thing as a professional prayer. Genuine communication lays it all out before the Lord. Inappropriate context. All right, lastly, and this is my encouragement to you. This is what helps me. When I'm at my driest points spiritually, this is the advice I give myself. Pray with an open Bible. Pray with Bible verses in front of you. Pray through Scripture. Pray meditatively. Pray the promises of God. Pray the attributes of God. Just tell God things that he already knows And use the Holy Spirit-inspired words to do it. And God will lift you by his Holy Spirit into a prayer life that not only encourages your own soul, but brings healing to the Christian community. And buoys us up and strengthens us to be able to face the world and change the world through the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for time and your word. Thank you that this...